Welcome and thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Green. I'm the CEO of the U.S. Study Center here at the University of Sydney. And as Sydney hosts World Pride 2023, the U.S. Study Center is honored to have joining us Qantas CEO Alan Joyce AC and former U.S. Ambassador to Australia, the Honorable John Barry, in a conversation on this important date with ABC's political commentator, Annabel Crabb. Um, before we begin, let me acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. Um, the University of Sydney, where we are, stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, where you are all joining us from. The United States and Australia have both followed circuitous, sometimes overlapping, often with Australia ahead of us, paths towards greater equality uh, in marriage. Um, John Barry was the first U.S. ambassador who was um, confirmed by a Republican Senate uh, to a G20 country as an openly gay ambassador. When he became ambassador in 2013, gay marriage was not legal in the United States, and it was not yet legal in Australia either. CEO Alan Joyce AC is one of the most influential voices in Australian business and political life, of course, but also on the question of marriage equality and the marriage equality campaign. Um, Annabelle's going to ask both of these distinguished thought leaders about their own lived experience, um, the uh, advances and frustrations they've seen in their lifetimes, where the US and Australia have worked in concert, where we've diverged and what we could do together um, to create full equality for all in the years ahead. So Annabelle, over to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much uh, for that introduction, Mike. And I'm extremely pleased to be here with these two gentlemen um, I that, who have made such a contribution in their respective professional fields. John, it's a great pleasure to have you in Sydney for World Pride 2023. Alan, I feel like I'm the luckiest journalist in Australia to have half an hour to ask Alan Joyce anything, but I have promised to stick to the <laughs> business of the day <laughs> so we won't go over um, by digressing <laughs> to other areas. Um, welcome to both of you, and I'm phoning in from Gadigal land too, and I wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners of this beautiful place that we're all celebrating World Pride 23 uh, in together. Alan, I wanted to start with you um, because I remember when you were appointed um, as the CEO of Qantas, that was in 2008. I mean, it's you've served longer than most Australian prime ministers. And I remember reading some remarks from you where you said, I was happy to be the gay CEO, a gay CEO, but I didn't want to be that gay CEO. What was that experience like? Did it feel like a groundbreaking achievement at the time? Yeah, Annabelle, um, it's great to be, to be able to be interviewed by you and be here with John, who's a great friend and a, a great advocate of Australia. Can I also acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, where, where I'm speaking from as well, um, and say how important it is to recognise the First Nations people, which we're doing on every flight that lands in Australia today, which is a great initiative we're very happy to do. Um, yeah, going back uh, that far, Annabelle, I don't know what was more controversial, uh, being gay and being CEO of Qantas or being Irish and being CEO of, of Qantas because I was the first probably non-Australian born CEO of the company. Um, and at the time, I was probably a little bit worried that, and I think the quote I had was, um, I didn't. I wanted to be a CEO that happened to be gay, but not a gay CEO, if you notice the difference. And then over time, I said, well, why was I that worried about it? Because what finally happened is that that role model, uh, which it was, because it was groundbreaking, I don't think there was any openly gay CEO in the country up till that moment, and certainly not a CEO of a big iconic brand like Qantas, which is recognised around the world, and probably the most recognised brand in Australia, or the most iconic brand. And then over the years, you got uh, these commentary from people, young kids that saw that as a role model. I had this young kid in New Zealand writing me a note that said uh, he came out to his family um, and they said he, he heard his uncle and his father talking about how they're gonna, he was going to have a terrible life. And then he read this, that story that I had openly, I come out as a gay and CEO of Qantas. And he went to his father and says, 
well, I think I can have a great life because if you can be the CEO of Qantas and, they, and be gay and be Irish, and then that's probably, uh, that means there's anything that's open for me. And I remember also um, at a Male Champions of Change activity where a lot of young female leaders, I had a young Indigenous girl saying to me, do you ever think an Indigenous First Nations person be, could, could become CEO of Qantas one day? And I did say, if an Irish gay man can, then a young Indigenous girl absolutely can one day. And that probably is, in some ways, an easier barrier. And I think that is great that there's role models out there and we need more of them and we need more of them outside the business, in politics like with John, in politics like the Irish Prime Minister now, in sport, in military and in other areas, because I think people want to see role models and see it's not a blockage to achieving success, being gay, uh, being coloured, being female, and I think more role models the better. Yeah, I guess it's about kind of chipping away at that assumption that we made, I mean, even up until recent decades in politics, for example, that your average politician would be a straight, married, white guy, you know, and um, any uh, divergence from that was sort of viewed with at least interest at worst suspicion. John, um, I know you managed to get married just before you arrived as, as ambassador in Australia. I still remember that glorious video that you posted so thrilled about being in Australia and I remember feeling so happy that you were there um but when you were growing up I mean what did you have by way of gay role models you know not many in in Rockville Maryland and uh you know Annabelle thanks and Alan what a great joy to be with you here today and Annabelle thank you so much for agreeing to do our interview um it, you know uh Quite frankly, when I was young, most people in the United States would categorize, they say, well, if you're if you're going to be openly gay, you're going to end up being a hairdresser. And nothing wrong with that, but I thought that's not going to be my skill set. And um, I wanted to go into government. And at that time, when I was young, it was illegal in the United States to be homosexual. Um, you could not hold a security clearance because it was deemed that you were uh, unfit, if you will, and you could be blackmailed, uh, you know, by uh, because it was illegal um, and therefore you were a security threat. It wasn't until Jimmy Carter, when I was in high school, that he finally repealed that. Um, mm -hmm. What's interesting, and, and there's really no way to know this, but I'm working, the Library of Congress is actually talking with me about this. Um, during the Clinton administration, right after uh, that had happened, um, I was the deputy assistant secretary for law enforcement, the Treasury Department, and acting assistant secretary at the time, and held the highest security clearance, which was called SCI, Special Compartmentalized Intelligence. Um, very few people get to that level, and probably was the first openly gay person to achieve that. And I'll never forget, Annabelle, when that actually happened, the FBI interviewing me were really nervous. And my partner at the time, Tom Leishman, um, who I sadly lost to AIDS in 1996. Um, but at the time, we were both living together and, and uh, considered ourselves you know, married, even though obviously it was illegal. But the FBI was very nice. I said, what's, what's the matter? And uh, you know, you guys seem really nervous. I'll answer anything you want, any question. And if you can find somebody who doesn't know I'm gay, then, you know, they probably aren't very important to me and they won't be able to blackmail me. So I'm, I am ready to tell you anything. And the, the FBI agent said, sir, uh, we're not awkward about what you're saying. We're awkward in that we're on new ground and that we've never had an interview like this before. And we're not sure exactly what we're supposed to ask. And it struck me like, you know, okay, this, this is relatively new ground. And, you know, you could hear the glass ceiling breaking. Um, and then from there, thank God, President Clinton appointed me an assistant secretary at the Interior Department. That's where I was first confirmed where Mike said. And it's interesting, uh, a, a gentleman named Frank Kameny, who was a World War II decorated hero, um, and uh, came back, you know, fought with Patton's army in, in Europe, came back, got his PhD at Harvard in astrophysics, 
was working for the Defense Mapping Agency and was fired solely because he was a gay man. And he fought this his whole life. And my predecessor at the Office of Personal Management, we jump again from Clinton now to Obama when I was appointed director of OPM. My predecessor said, you are a perversion. You are this, you're that, you're a horrible man. You can't, you couldn't hold a security clearance. You can't be employed by the United States government. You're unworthy. All of these terrible, terrible things. Well, here I was an openly gay man sitting in the seat of the guy who had fired Frank Kameny. And Frank Kemney then was still alive and I had him back and we gave him our department's highest honor, which is defending the merit principle and that people should be judged only by how good they can do the job and not one damn thing else. And I apologized on behalf of President Obama and the United States of America for how he had been treated over his lifetime. And Frank Kemney stood up in the room and said, apology accepted. And he was a great <laughs> New Yorker. And, you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And, you know, so change happens in waves. And it's, it's you know, I've been so fortunate to be a part of some of them. There have been great people in front of me, like Frank, Roberta Actenberg, the first person, first openly gay person confirmed by United States Senate in United States history, Roberta. Um, you know, there have been myself and many others, Fred Hochberg, uh, uh, Secretary of the Air Force, just incredible people. And now, finally, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, we, you know, in the cabinet. So we've come a long way in my story. It's really, really fun, Annabelle. I'm sorry I'm talking too much. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, you're right. I mean, this analogy of the wave is quite apposite, isn't it? Because you do get sort of rushbacks as well. It's not very smooth. And if you look at the area of law reform in this, um, in this area in the States and in, in Australia, Political decision makers have really fumbled uncertainly with how to approach, for instance, same-sex marriage as an issue. Even Barack Obama had a lot of um, a lot of changes of heart and kind of dangling out potential reforms to his thinking. We had, of course, our first female prime minister in Julia Gillard, who in the end declared herself to be against same-sex marriage. It seemed like there was always an orthodoxy at the centre of politics that um, equal rights for non-heterosexual Australians or Americans was somehow a non-starter as a political issue or, or political poison. How did that change? Well, look, I think, you know, the art of politics is the art of the possible. And, you know, both Julia, who is just a wonderful leader and a great defender of human rights um, and a dear friend, and obviously the President Obama the same way, you know, leaders have to make tough calls as to how fast can you push the public? How fast can you run in front of them? Um, how sometimes you have to stop and wait for the community of your po political, you know, nation to catch up. And, and both of them were doing amazing leadership and, you know, and, and taking new ground. I, you look at Barack Obama, uh, you're, you're focusing just on marriage, but, you know, before that, he, we, God bless him. I went, we had this discussion. Uh, what do we do first when, when he was elected? And I recommended, I said, Mr. President, the most important thing you can do first is to repeal don't ask, don't tell, because we've got to stop, you know, the first thing in any civil rights, African-Americans getting their civil rights was to serve openly in the military and be recognized for their service. Gay people were being forced to lie, to die for their country. This was wrong. And if we could correct that, if Americans understand, wait a minute, this person's dying for our country, for my liberties and rights, they deserve their rights when they come home. And that is how civil rights have progressed in the United States. And so we did. And that was the toughest thing to ask of the president at that time, Annabelle, because it was the hardest, steepest hill right. to take. For, you know, forget marriage. It was, that was the hill that had to be taken first. You know, it was, it was, it was Normandy. And he delivered. He delivered success. His chairman of his Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, did a phenomenal job and got that over the finish line. And I was proud to help. And, you know, and we took that beachhead and we grew from there. And then we we were able to bring other progressions of protecting uh, uh, transgender rights in the federal workplace and on and on and on. And then ultimately, obviously, the Supreme Court 
gave all Americans the right to marry uh, and, and not be denied on who they love. So um, phenomenal progress. Leaders have to kind of judge at what pace, when, how. And the job of us political pointees is sometimes to take the arrows for it. Yeah, I wish it was faster too, but the president gets to make the call on the pace. And God bless him. He's my president. He is a phenomenal president. And I'm happy to take that arrow. And I guess it's worth remembering that there's also, um, and we've talked about um, two progressive prime ministers, but there's also significant examples of leadership on the conservative side of politics in both of our countries um, to pursue this, um, the right of the individual to, to live and love as they see fit, a true expression of liberalism. But I wonder, um, we tend to think instinctively that, you know, that law reform is about governments and about politicians making decisions and, um, it should be, then sometimes they kind of fumble the ball. What I've noticed over the last decade or two is the importance of, um, of business in um, backing in governments for important change, often important social change. I think you could make an argument in this country that um, the private sector has been more decisive on um climate change than successive Australian parliaments. So, Alan, um, as a business leader who notoriously does not stick to his knitting, um, what is your policy on, um, on, on um, social campaigning and the importance of business taking a stance on social issues? Well, Annabelle, I think it's, it's extremely important. And I think you go back companies like Qantas, actually, and I think it's ingrained a bit in the Australian um, psychic a bit, because Qantas going back a long time was, we had indigenous aircraft painted in the 1990s. We, we were one of the first sponsors of Mardi Gras where you certainly couldn't claim it was rainbow washing back then. It was probably unpopular to do. Um, so Qantas has already led in a whole series of things, even before my time. And I do feel that, you know, if you're a business leader, you're part of society, uh, you need to take a role and you need to be involved in that debate. Um, and I think when it came to marriage equality in this country, what I was pretty proud of is how many business leaders actually got out there and supported it. I think the original, you reference the stick to your knitting, which I think Peter Dutton asked me to do, and was a bit more explicit that Qantas shouldn't have been involved in this. But when you go back to that, that was in relation to a note that 30 or 40 CEOs had signed. He happened to pick on the, probably the only gay CEO that was on the list. Uh, I made a big point of that. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, I, I remember when we went through this, we said we thought there was good reasons to do it morally, but there's also good reasons a business should be involved in it. Because, you know, you look at a business case, customers will tell you, uh, particularly minority customers, that they're five times more likely to pick a brand that they think represents them. And I always remember when I came out and supported it and got the criticism from the government and other people, Richard Branson came out a while later saying that he was a big supporter of marriage equality before I was and that Virgin were leaders in this. And then Margaret Court came out and said she wasn't going to travel on Qantas because we were supporting this. And I thought, oh, that's great. She can't fly on any airline in the country. Um, so she's probably going to have to take the buses to get around. And then Greyhound Buses came out and said they support marriage quality as well. So I think she's, she appears at the tennis every now and again. So I'm assuming she's walking across um, and not flying on any airlines, given the role that we played on. Where does Rex stand, I wonder? <laughs> I wonder where Rex stands, but he don't fly to Perth, so I don't think she can get on there. Yeah, right. Unless she can't. No, no. I, but it's no, Sorry, one last thing on this. I'll just say for the other stakeholders, I mean, it's amazing the reaction you get from your, from your, um, your shareholders on this because there was a lot of controversy. And the shareholders, I was in Boston meeting one of our biggest shareholders, and he was grilling me about what we were doing to support marriage equality at the time. And I thought he was going to take the, the, the negative view on it. He actually said at the time, I don't think you're doing enough. You need to spend more money and it's it's our money the shareholders money and we expect good companies to do more in this space and then a the reaction for employees if there's one company that has a huge amount of lgbti employees in this country it would be Qantas. And, and going out there and battling for them uh, was seen as a positive thing for the ceo to do so i knew our stakeholders were behind us 
And I think people should have that confidence the stakeholders are, are there. Um, we did get a lot of negativity on it. Also in Perth, um, I got a pie in my face because of our support from, uh, mm. from, uh, from somebody who felt it, bizarrely that a gay man shouldn't have a voice and could mm. have a powerful voice and shouldn't be talking about it. And he put the pie in the face um, at the time over there. And I didn't realize it was for that, but we later discovered it was the case. But that was the type, that was the type of reaction we were getting that finally we had gay role models, CEOs, and people standing up for these rights. And people didn't like us inserting ourselves in the discussion because they knew they were powerful voices and they were scared of powerful voices being advocates for these social rights. John is asked to make an observation about Pygate. <laughs> <laughs> Annabelle, I have a funny story to piggyback on, on Alan's, if I could. Um, it, when I was at the Assistant Secretary for Interior, I uh, was able to get uh, Stonewall Bar, which in the United States was sort of where the gay rights revolution began in New York City on the National Register. And I went to New York to give a speech, which I, I learned at that point, you know, giving a speech at a gay pride event where, you know, 300,000 people are all drinking and dancing was no one there that day heard my speech, but NPR played my speech on the radio. So it went across the whole country and I had compared. So I said, what is it about uh, the heat of July that led, you know, the, the founding fathers to revolt against England and create a new country? What is it in July, the heat of July that allowed General Meade to defeat the Confederate army at Gettysburg and save the Union? What is it in July that led that transgender uh, LGBTQIA plus people to stand up and say, you are not taking me to jail. I am fighting back. And we are, these are our streets. This is our bar. And you are our police. And you're supposed to be serving us. And by God, the rights started to change. So I got a death, uh, like a, a huge number of death threats. But the funniest one, Alan. story. I've never told you this story. So they played this, you know, my speech on the radio and I got this death threat. And it just got madder and madder. And it ended with you, you, apostle of Satan. <laughs> and I, I told my then husband, Curtis, you now 27 years. I said, you know, there's only 12 of us. <laughs> and I said, Curtis, I've never wanted to get a tattoo but if i ever do get one it's going to be apostle of satan you know, i thought like that that is just too good so you, know, you, you have to sometimes turn the light on hate and that's the best way and humor on hate is the best way to defeat it and you, you know so uh, but i, I, I to add to that, John, the funny story about the pie incident, and I, this this is my memory of it, not the violence that that caused, but it was when I when when I took my glass off. I was speaking to a room of probably four or five hundred people. The pie was in the face. I took my glasses off, and he walked away. And I looked uh, to the audience, and I said the words that came out of my mouth were "feckin' heck." What was that about? <laughs> and, and then I got off the stage. I said, give me a few minutes and I'll get tidied up. And I got off the stage and, and Olivia, who was the head of public relations, Olivia Ward came over to me and she says, um, and I said to her, oh, that was really bad. I cursed on the stage. And she said, dude, that is not the story. Um, don't get relaxed about it. And I went and got cleaned up and I came back and I got a big round of applause. But the, the humor of that moment is the one thing that sticks in my mind, not the violence of that moment. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's funny, you do think of the positives out of it. Was it a meat pie? It, it was a... It was a, a pie factory. Um, I think it was a, that's another funny story on Annabelle. And um, it was, it was a sweet pie. I think it was, and that they published, they tweeted and saying, it's okay. Our pies are made of natural products. Alan's suit uh, will clean up, uh, no problem. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> that was not true. False advertising. I lost a pretty good suit. I never got it done. And the event was a Kerry Stokes event. And he rang me to apologize. He wasn't there. But when I got back to Sydney that night, I am at my um, in my apartment block at the table at the concierge table. There was a note from Kerry and a package. And he says, this this is a pie from Western Australia. Enjoy it, Alan. It'll taste better than the one you got thrown in. Your <laughs> 
That's outstanding. I've got to break in. Like, as what is clearly going to happen here is we're going to have a great time and run out of time. We've got 15 minutes left before okay. I open up for questions. And I just realized that I forgot to even say you can ask questions. We've got a lot of people um, dialing into this session. And if you go down to the QA box that's at the bottom of your screen, you can chuck a question in there and I'll read it out for you. And um, apologies in, in advance if I butcher the pronunciation of anybody's name, because that may well happen. Um, so I've got a question for the both of you, really, and just jump in whichever of you wishes to answer it. I made a show a couple of years ago called Misrepresented, which talked to women who had um, broken um, uh, boundaries in the uh, in, in Australian politics. This was to celebrate 100 years of women serving in Australian parliaments. Um, and often there were stories about women from opposite sides of politics who had helped each other, that had helped to make each other visible and audible, even in circumstances where the environment dictated against that. And I, I've reflected that it's it was easy in that time for women to recognize each other and to see who they were. But I mean, that's not the same, right? When um, you're talking about the LGBTIQ plus community, you don't necessarily know who everybody is. So what does that mean for supporting your peers? Alan, do you want to go first? No, you go first, John. Well, Annabelle, I think, first of all, I think it's not just your peers, you know, no progress happens just from within a community. Yeah. Um, the best advice I got when I was taking up my first appointment as an openly gay man in the federal government um, was from an African-American woman um, who told me, she said, John, I was the first, you know, African-American woman to become a senior official at the Smithsonian Institution. She said, you're going to be judged twice as harsh as anyone else in your job. You're going to have to cut your grass twice as often to be considered the same as your neighbor. And it was the best advice I ever got. She says, you're first. You are going to be one of the first people in the federal government is going to be open about this. And if you do, if you slip up or if you make a mistake, it will set back people behind you by decades, potentially. So she said, Whatever you do, cut your grass twice as often, work twice as hard. Don't touch a drink while you're in office. Stay focused and deliver results because if you do, then there'll be more people behind you who will come faster. It was the best advice I could have been given and it was, it was phenomenal. Other quick story. When I, my first confirmation was during the Clinton administration. So I've been confirmed by the Senate three times. First time, was what Mike referred to. First time anyone had ever been, Roberta Actenberg was confirmed in the first two years of the Clinton administration. There was a Democratic Senate. The Senate was lost to Clinton in the middle of his term. No one had been confirmed for a long time. And the Republicans controlled the Senate. And they finally put me forward. And I was the first person to be confirmed when the Republicans controlled the Senate under Clinton. And you know, this was the days of Jesse Helms, a name that many Australians might not know, but he was a Southern senator from North Carolina and a notorious homophobe. Um, there were other notorious homophobes in the United States Senate at the time. And one senator can sink your nomination. One senator can put a hold on it. How I got confirmed unanimously in the Senate was I had worked with the most conservative Republicans in the House of Representatives and had earned their respect over a 10-year period. Um, Frank Wolf, God bless him, a, a conservative member, Republican from the state of Virginia, went over and talked to Jesse Helms and said, I have worked with this young man. He is, you know, you should not put a hold on him. You should allow, you don't have to vote for him, but don't put a hold on him because he's gonna do a good job and he deserves the chance. And God bless him, Jesse Helms did not put a hold on me. He could have, he could have sunk us and set us back 10 years. And it was because of treating other people on the other side of the aisle with respect that saved my bacon that day. So, it, you know, you got it. We ought not just think of, you know, look, at best we're 10% of the population. 
we will never get anything in a democracy by ourselves. We have got to reach out to other communities and make sure they're with us and help us whenever we need it. So I'm, I'm sorry, I went on too long, I apologize. No, you didn't at all. I'm gonna just give Alan a chance to give his views. That was That's a great story. And, and I think Annabelle, what I've found over the years, it, changes over time what's happened in the LGBTI community. Because when I first came out to, to my parents, so I probably came out three times if, if, at different levels. The first time was to the parent, my parents, and I was really worried about that because a young kid in my neighborhood was kicked out by his father when he came out when he was 16. And I came out in my late teens and I had a very accepted parents, which were phenomenal. And um, then when I went to work in Aer Lingus, which is the Irish airline at the time, homosexuality was still legal in Ireland. And I didn't know any other gay people there because nobody was out. Um, and I didn't come out. I mean, my boss, when I first arrived, said, we're a good Catholic airline. Um, and and on Christmas Day, I always remember I was in charge of fleet planning. Christmas Day, we grounded the entire fleet for the Bishop of Dublin to bless the fleet. So it wasn't a very safe environment to come out in. And I didn't come out um, in Aer Lingus. And actually, I came to Australia because I thought this was an amazing environment, amazing people here. And I came out in work when I started working for ANSET in 96. Um, and then it was when I was CEO of Qantas, the more public outing that he came out on. And then what I found over time is that, that, that more and more people support you at those different levels. You was your family initially. Um, I found then it was your work colleagues in ANSET and here that you got to know. And um, bizarrely in Australia now, there's a lot more open CEOs and there is a community of people that are mentors and bouncing off each other, uh, which is phenomenal. And we still keep in contact with each other. And some of my best friends are like Michael Ebert who run SBS, Paul O'Sullivan that ran Optus that are out in the general community. But the, the, the strange thing, Annabelle, that's now happening as well. I remember mentoring this young kid in Ireland uh, that read about me in that original City Morning Herald article. And I ran into him just walking in the streets in Dublin and, and we kept in contact. Um, and he asked me for advice all the time in his various stages of his career. But the bizarre thing now, it's reverted the other way as well. Because when, when I've gone through tough times, it's one of the first people to text, how are you? Do you want to talk? Um, and I find that so beautiful that there's people that are willing to support you and, and build on that network. And I think the bigger the network you can, I think John is absolutely right. You know, the diversity of that network to other minority groups, the advice you can get from other conservative people out there, but it's also in your own community. I think it's, it's well known. The one thing I think we have there, work to do here on is we're still at only 60% of people are coming out at work in Australia and that's gone backwards since COVID. It used to be at 67% and I think the big support you get is from your, your local boss, uh, your team and people around you and I think that's where most people do. For, as part of Pride we put a video up of a young engineer who came out in a very male dominated area um, it's a great video. He describes the support he gets from the people that were there. But in particular, his boss came in as a, as a gay ally with a, with a rainbow lanyard to show to the whole workforce that he supports this young man in that career. Yeah. It's more of those stories that we need, and it's more of those um, key alliance partners that will help people uh, go through that opening up and becoming more acceptable in workplaces, which we still have a lot of work to do you make Annabelle, a great point. Yeah, keep going. Can I just add one thing? I'm sorry. Of course you can, John. Jump you know, in. I tell you, as a young kid in Rockville, Maryland, same thing, growing up, a very, my dad went to Mass every day, Alan, a very Catholic family. Coming out was the hardest thing I, I did to them and, and did it later. I didn't really come out to my parents until I was 25. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, where I was inspired to become an openly gay man was by the news I would hear and read from Australia. Australia was a lighthouse of liberty for the LGBT, you know, that back then it was just the gay community. And it was, you were inspirational. And I would see this and I would say, we can have a better future. We don't have to live in the closet. We don't have to accept, you know, second class status. We are, you know, we are worthy of love and dignity as human beings. And 
it was Australia that taught me that first. And God bless Australia because you have been a lighthouse in not only my life, but I will tell you, I have heard this repeated over and over again from Americans that we have, and, and from other leaders in our community who have told me, we all judged ourselves by how we were well we were doing according to the gold standard of Australia. And I think we've only gotten ahead of you once, and that was on gay marriage, and it was probably only for six months. And I, I teased some of my fellow LGBTQIA plus leaders here in Australia that, you know, oh, come on, don't begrudge us six months. You've been ahead of us my entire lifetime. <laughs> Annabelle, I want to add one other thing. We're feeding off each other. But I had the exact same experience back in Ireland. I saw this as the shining light on the hill. It was a way of having a freedom and, and having that life. I come, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to come to Australia. But what, what was interesting, when I left Ireland, uh, homosexuality was still illegal and only got legalised later. Um, but Ireland did jump ahead of Australia. Ireland did get there on marriage equality a couple of years beforehand, were a vote. Um, Australia had a slightly bigger yes vote than Ireland, which I still hold out for, which is great. But the other thing Ireland's gone ahead of, we have now uh, the first, the openly gay prime minister, second time in office, um, and very popular in Ireland. And we've never had an openly gay prime minister in Australia. So we're ahead on that. We might have had a closeted gay prime minister here. <laughs> I, have my suspicions. I have my suspicions about one or two of them, Annabelle. And it's usually the, the very right-wing ones that are in the closet, but we we'll leave it there. And I have to say that yeah. one of the two. Well, at least you know all of those electorates voted yes. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, I, I, I hear what you say, and I, I kind of burst with pride to hear you talk that way about Australia. And of course, we know though that the history here in Australia is full of tears and violence and misunderstanding, just like every other country. And when I heard you before, John, saying, you know, that you resolved to work twice, twice as hard, mow your lawn twice as often, be better, be irreproachable, um, and also to hold out a hand of friendship to those who weren't automatically your friends. It's a very gracious thing to be able to do and not fair that you have to do that. And so what I wanna ask you is how, how important is it to forgive and let go in this process of reform? Annabelle, I, uh, first of all, I think, you know, I think the distinction between childhood and adulthood is recognizing that life isn't fair. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, no one can promise you that. And that's not written into anyone's constitution. You know, it's, it's um, equality is what we're seeking and, and striving for. And in my experience, light overcomes dark, love overcomes hate. And in fact, in my experience, Hate is a wonderful fuel that makes your light burn even brighter and hotter. And, you know, you can either take that hate and it can infect you and be internalized and ruin your life, or you can consume it and turn it into something good and beautiful. And every time I had a bottle thrown at me in a march or every time I got a death threat, it just made me recommit twice as hard the next day to we are not going to stop until no one should be have a bottle for them. No one should be afraid to come into the workplace. No one should be threatened. And 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 striving for that equality under the law is what was what 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 drove it. But at the end of the day, the strongest force you learn as you get older is love. Um, I've seen it time and time again. Love, you know, it's a trite saying, but love does conquer all. And many people have paid with their lives to prove their love. And that's obviously the ultimate sacrifice. And there have been many in our community that have suffered the ultimate sacrifice. Matthew Shepard, a good example in the United States. And I know many here in Australia. And so, but again, at the end of the day, love won out. And so um, I draw supreme faith and hope in that, Annabelle. 
That is very beautifully said. Thank you, John. And I think one thing that both of you have in common is a, um, a lightness and an optimism and an ability to deploy your sense of humour when um, grappling with these matters. Was it always like that, Alan? Did you go through a bitter stage? No, it's, I've always, me and John are very similar. And our, our husbands now are very similar. We're, we're, <laughs> you know, am I, I can my tell husband, you by your ties, though, because yeah, John's are a we, little we bit do. more out there. I have, my husband, Shane, is just, a, a, you know, an amazing, he worked very heavily on the marriage equality campaign. He ran the shop in Oxford Street. He did all the merchandise and made a lot of money. And I think you always have foundations that help you. And I think having, a, Curtis is a phenomenal guy as well. And I think what we found is having that support behind you, having that rock, because Shane is my rock. Um, and then being able to be optimistic around it is the way you have to go. And, you know, when you're running, when you're in politics and when you're running an airline, we have the ups and downs. You always have to be optimistic. You always have to be glass half full. And I always believe that's the way to live your life and the way to run your business. And I think people around you look for that optimism if you're a leader and you need to have that optimism. It's important. And there's a lot to be optimistic around. I think John so summarized it up so well there. We are so lucky in this country. We're so lucky in Ireland. We're so lucky in the United States. There's a lot of other countries where it's so far behind and there's a lot of work to be done. And I think these countries can be that light on the hill that Australia was for us. Have we got work to do? Absolutely. Is there a lot of areas that we could go backwards on that we need to be vigilant on? Absolutely. But wow, you have to look at the road we've been on, the journey we've been on and how far we've become and celebrate that and still have the optimism that we can go further and spread optimism around the world because there's a lot of dark places out there and they need those lights on the hill um, to show them the way to go. I, I said last night in a Bella government house, uh, God bless Governor Beasley and her husband, Dennis, the Excellency Dennis Wilson, uh, for hosting 200 World Pride leaders last night at government house and flying the pride flag over government house. Um, that, uh, you know, wherever and whenever one person on the planet can be put in jail or put to death for whom they love, then none of us is safe. And we can't forget that. And yes, we have a long way to go in the United States. Yes, we have a long way to go in Australia before we're, we're, we become a more perfect union. But there are many countries, as Alan said, where people are, are can still pay with their lives and still pay with prison. And until that ends everywhere, we cannot rest as a community. Well, look, that provides a pretty good segue for me to um, release from my grasping fingers control of this conversation and let some of our audience in. Um, because Bruce Wolpe from um, the US Studies Centre has um, asked a question about um, something that we've certainly noticed happening for women's reproductive rights over the last um, 12 months. What is the potential for um, a uh, a slipping back of gay and transgender rights. He asks, on the Republican side, we see many members of Congress and potential presidential candidates advocating strong policies against gay and transgender rights. How are you reading this? This is for you, John. And what should we be looking out for in terms of the 2024 election? Look, it, there's no question but that our transgender sister and brothers are under attack in the United States and probably, I suspect, in every country around the world. Um, they are the vanguard uh, right now, and we need to be there on the ramparts with them. Um, it is, uh, you know, some of the arguments that are being used uh, are as specious as they come. Um, it, you know, if anybody thinks someone is going to through, go through the difficulty of having a sex change operation just so they can go win some silly medal in some sports competition, then they are you know, woefully ill-informed. Um, I, I have never heard of a case of such. Um, and yet that doesn't prevent people from spewing the lie. Uh, and, uh, you know, Bruce, you're exactly right. Um, my view is, and quite frankly, uh, we had a chance in the Obama administration to pass employment non-discrimination in the United States, but we, to get the votes needed in the House and Senate, 
the, the, the deal was you would have to drop transgender protection from the bill. And I said either, I advised the president and the, God bless him, he agreed. We need to stand together. Um, we ought not take a, get a half a loaf now and come back and get the, this is one of human rights. We need to protect each other. And we either rise together or we fall together, but we stay together. And we, so we did not pass, we did not succeed in passing the Employment Non-Discrimination Act because of that. Um, it's critical we not uh, uh, sever any arm of this wonderful, beautiful, amazingly full of love community that the world needs more of, not less. And, um, you know, as, as long as I have breath, I will be there for our transgender brothers and sisters. And, uh, you know, and, and it's a fight that all of us need to be part of. Their civil rights matter. I've got a question for both of you from George Papa Papa Nicolau. Um, I might I might send it your way, Alan. Um, there's been a couple of questions about what is the next great bastion of um, equal rights to be won. George says that sport, along with the military, seem to be the last bastions of queer discrimination. Where do you see those areas going? I'd be interested to hear your answer, Alan. Yeah, Annabelle, I, I, I think it is. And it's not maybe just in the LGBTI community. I think, as you know, I think Liz Broderick has been doing some work as a good friend uh, with the male champions of change and set a group up for sports to help mm -hmm. with diversity, female diversity in sports. And I think make a good progress. And I think they're important moves because when you change the culture to, to, to embrace all forms of diversity, uh, that helps. And Liz has also been in with the Defence Forces and uh, working on how to help them with their gender issues, which I think does help. Uh, but we do have a few issues here which are a bit worrying. I think the NRL, what was it, 86% of clubs voted against doing a Pride Week, uh, like mm -hmm. some of the other sports, because they were wor worried it would cause division. That's, that means we have a long way to go in places like that, which is a worry. Um, and I, but I think, uh, and I think more sports people need to come out. I think we had our first um, gay A-League soccer player that came out, and that was phenomenal, got a great reaction. And I think we've had now one of in the, the All Blacks captain, previous captain has come out. But wow, have we got so few people in sports that are actively out when they're participating. And yeah. that does help when you have those role models. So we have a long way to go. But I think the work that's been done with Liz Broderick, with Male Champions of Change, with the work she's done with the military and sport, with gender diversity, helps with LGBTI diversity. But, but it's so far behind. But what I also love is the fact that we have things like the military and the police marching at Mardi Gras. And they usually get the biggest cheer, and, and rightly so. They're marching in uniform. And that's, you know, that wasn't the case more than 10 years ago. And I think it's, it's a symbol. It's, it's a focus. And we know the leadership there. And I know some former heads of the Army and Defence and Curtin. And they're very focused on making sure that there's uh, that there's diversity, female diversity and LGBTI diversity. And they're big proponents and big advocates of it, which I think is great. Annabelle, I think an industry that's often overlooked and everybody presumes that Hollywood is not homophobic. It is. The entertainment industry uh, is just as guilty as the sports industry. And we ought not... You know, it, it has, we, we learned last, you know, in the past few years about the sexual harassment that was going on in that industry, but homophobia in the entertainment industry is very real. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we ought not uh, uh, ignore that because I think, you know, everybody tends to think, oh, it's, you know, it's Hollywood, they're left, they're, Hol you know, California, they're, everything's fine. It's not. And we ought not kid about it. And, um, it's it's as just as serious an area. So literally, there's pro there's not an area of economic life that doesn't have some level or form of discrimination right now. And we you know so we we can't. That's why we still have pride movements. That's why we are still pressing. Um, my nephew is uh, uh, is gay, although he's never used the word gay. And you know, my husband Curtis reminds me. He says, you know. 
why are you upset about that? That's exactly what you've been fighting for your whole life is that there'd be no difference, you know, that you'd be, you'd be treated equally. And he was exactly right. You know, we don't need a label. We don't need a, a name. And when we get to the point where that is the case everywhere, then we maybe can stop worrying about how many letters we have in our acronym of the day and we can be one and that will be a beautiful world, but it, we ain't there yet. And Annabelle, can I add one other thing on this? I think there's also pockets everywhere. So I know in Qantas, um, we, we have areas that we're still working on on gender diversity and diversity generally. You know, we have areas that have historically been male dominated, uh, things like pilots, which uh, we have very low levels. We have 7% female pilots, worldwide is only five. And we have a lot of work in a lot of businesses in areas to improve diversity. And I think that's going to take a while. So nobody is saying that anywhere has got a right. There's a lot of work, I think, to be done in companies, as well as sports, as well as military, as well as Hollywood, as well as politics. And we know the job is not done. Alan, um, I heard what you said about um, the issues in various football codes in Australia, and it often there you have this interesting circumstance where you have um, uh, freedom of identity coming up against freedom of religion, and as a person who runs a business that is diverse in all of those ways, how do you manage to balance those needs of your diverse workforce while respecting them all? Well, I think you got, you said the answer there. You have to have a respectable and accepted, um, respect and acceptance in the workplace. That's really important. So um, I absolutely believe in people's ability to have religious freedom. I absolutely believe in people's ability uh, to be who they are. Uh, when they interfere on each other, that's that's where um, I think the problem is. So, so, and I think it's going to be important if there is a religious freedom bill that comes up, uh, that we 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 do recognise that. So, if somebody is abusive or bullying and using a religion to do that, I think that's fundamentally wrong. And that shouldn't happen in the workplace. It shouldn't be customers to our employees. It shouldn't be employees to employees. And my top priority is to make sure uh, that people can come to work in a safe environment, a respected environment, and everybody respects the people for who they are. And that doesn't infringe on the individual rights of, of each of those people. And that can be done, but that balance is important. And if, if one person's rights um, overweighs another person's rights, that's when you run into problems on this. John, um, our questioner Samuel Gaskin has asked, actually both of you, but I'm going to throw it at you, John. Um, what anti-racism work are you doing within your roles and workplaces to make sure your interaction with pride is diverse? Um, John, um, I just wonder if you could talk us through your journey on um, recognizing diversity across um, this group of people, which is full of all sorts. Absolutely. And, and look, our community is of every color and of every ability. And whenever I was in government, uh, and I continue to do this today, um, you know, I made sure that we gave opportunity to all of the facets of our community. So it, it, my team on OPM, we had LGBT people with disability, we had LGBT of color, we had LGBT brown and black. We had LGBT uh, Latino history, um, you know, so we were able to reflect the full beauty and diversity of our community, which is endless. And, uh, you know, no one place can ever capture it all other than the Pride Parade in Sydney, you know, which is a, probably the best place that ever captures the entire breadth of our community in one event and it takes hours upon hours and, and, and all of Oxford Street to capture it. But look, it, it, you make a very critical point. Um, we need to make sure opportunity and, and, and on gender balance. So for example, right now I run a, a nonprofit that uh, prioritizes giving scholarships between America and Australia. 50% of our, our, our scholarships are, are balanced by gender so that you know we've given away $15 million to a thousand people 50% of those were women, 50% to men. We are the largest indigenous exchange program between America and Australia right now. 
Um, and so we're, we're focusing on Native Americans and people of color who can uh, enrich each other's cultures by travel and experiencing the wonderful Americans can come and learn about Australia, just like my dad did after World War II or during World War II, I should say, while well, he would just got off of the island of Guadalcanal to Australians coming to America and learning there. But thank you. It's a, it's a great question. I wonder, um, keeping an eye on the clock, we really have only about ooh, a minute or two left of this part before we ask Mike to wrap up, wrap up and release everybody back to their day. Um, Jean Cropper has asked, and I'm sure both of you would probably have a standout story of this kind. Did you ever find yourselves in an odd situation where ritual or protocol was broken by you bringing a husband along instead of a wife? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I was... So I arrived as ambassador, right, from the United States uh, to Australia um, with a husband of now, today, 27 years. Back then, I, I, I don't know, I'm terrible with math. Um, but anyways, uh, I was noticing that we were getting some places were only inviting me. And uh, so my husband is very reserved. And he's not necessarily wants to go every place with me, that's for sure. But what I did was I said to our staff is I says, look, anybody who's just inviting me, you need to call back and say, you know, is this, this invitation should be if it was, you know, obviously there were some events that were just for the ambassador. But if it was a social event and a, and a spouse would normally be there and he wasn't invited, I'd say, I'm only coming if my spouse can come with me. And it only took a short while before all of a sudden everybody realized if you want the American ambassador you, at, at a dinner that spouses are going to be present, you better darn well invite his husband as well. And whether you're government, private, wherever, I didn't care. It was, you know, you'll either invite both of us or you'll get none of us. And that's how I handled it. Well, no one would want to miss out on your company, I'm sure, John. <laughs> Alan, did you want to throw something in quickly? Yeah, I, I, I suppose the only story I have is that when my previous chairman, who was, he was a phenomenal guy, Lee Clifford, um, started inviting us to events, and I came with my partner at the time before we could get married, Shane. And he was he, for a while he was thinking, oh, who's this guy, Shane, that was turning up all the time? And it took a while to realise that that was my partner. And it was fantastic that Lee never even asked the question and never even became a problem. Um, and then he went on to appoint me as the CEO of Qantas. Um, uh, but um, that 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 was the only thing I just took it for granted that Shane would come with me to events, not thinking uh, that it was going to be something that somebody would 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 query, if you know what I mean. Annabelle, before we, we I know you got to end, and we could maybe we just go over a touch. One last word um, for those who are in, find themselves in a tough place. I think it's important to just point out: um, don't forget, people can change. Um, when I came out to my dad, I had a partner, Tom Leishman, who was in my life. And my dad said, I know you said you've met somebody. Don't ever bring him out to the house. And it was a punch in the gut. Um, my mom said, give him time. And he evolved in my family. We both went and helped move my sister when she and her husband moved their house. We babysat their kids. And it became almost every, we had got together as family for dinner every Sunday night. And every Sunday, there was a person at the table who wasn't at the table. Oh, Tom did this. Tom, you know, Tom was, I'm, I'm six foot. Tom was six foot four, solid muscle, gorgeous. And, you know, Tom was doing the Tom. Oh, the girls love Tom. Oh my God, he plays with the kids. Fast forward, excuse me, 10 years. Tom is dying of AIDS. I call my mom and dad. I say, if you want to say goodbye to Tom, you better come now. They came down within an hour, and I'll never forget this to my dying day. My father held Tom in his arms and said, I love you like my own son. People can change. Don't give up on love. Your love is valuable, precious, true, and right. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Stick by it and let your light shine. And you will find 
people will rise to the occasion of your love. It's been my experience. Fantastic message to end on, John. Fantastic. What a beautiful story. And um, I want to thank you for your generosity in telling it because these are precious things um, that you hold dear in your heart and big, big lessons to learn. And um, I want to thank you for the generosity with which you've given them to us this afternoon. You too, Alan. Um, and I want to thank you both for being here and for allowing me to sit in on the conversation and occasionally get a question in. Thank you both very much. Mike, I'm <laughs> going to hand back to you now. And thank you to you, Annabelle, for leading us through a really remarkable discussion. Um, I encourage everyone on uh, the line now, and we'll certainly do this to 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 invite people to view this on our website um, because it was a very very powerful moment. I grew up not far from John in Maryland, uh, political family in Washington. Um, uh, my family had views on gay marriage, uh, conservative Republicans, progressive Marines, CIA officers. Uh, my brother came out in the 90s. Everyone's view changed in an instant. Why love triumph? Love one. I think that's the most important message. The one John helped us end on. There is hope because in the end, love does win. It's political, it's, it's, it's sociological, it's even geopolitical, but in the end, as, as, as John just demonstrated with his own very, very intimate story, in the end, love wins. So that's a remarkable and important way to end, and I thank you all and hope many, many more will view this on our website. Thank you.